Again, I am so grateful you're here. This is week one of what we're calling Zero Faith. And we're talking about faith because faith is one of those tricky things to measure. I don't know how many of you just by quick show of hands have some sort of fitness tracker. Could be an Apple Watch, an app you use, a Fitbit or some version. All right, so at least half of you have thrown your hands up. Um, and I say that I'm surprised, but I'm not. We're a very fit bunch, so I'm very excited. Thank you very much. It's good. Um, but Fitbit is an interesting thing. I don't know if you noticed this. Last couple years, these fitness trackers have really taken off. I mean, I never once thought about how many steps I take to go to the bathroom until someone was like, oh, that's like 347 steps or whatever it is. And around a five-mile distance is about 10,000 steps. Some of you have run or walked or done some kind of race in the recent history of your life, uh, whether it's a marathon or something shorter, and you know that you took tens of thousands of steps before I never really measured my life in steps, so I didn't really care. But now that I've done that, I feel much more accomplished at the end of the day. It's like, I deserve these Cheetos. I walked 4,000 steps today. You know what I'm saying? Like, you've been there. Uh, but it's interesting, Fitbit last year uh, brought in a revenue of over $1.6 billion, which is like, what? How did someone make money off tracking my steps? Like making me more fit, they somehow made money. I don't get how that happened. Uh, but it happened, and it's really interesting. And I don't know if you had something like this at work, but you've probably either been a part of one or, or know someone who's a part of like a work fitness challenge. How many of you kind of said, yeah, we had that, or we had to pretend to exercise for a week so we could hit this certain goal in our department or whatever. Well, people discovered that if they hooked their Fitbit up to something other than their own body, they got way more steps. I don't know if you've heard of this, but people put them in hamster wheels, made the hamster do all the repetitions for them. They had like 20,000 steps. Some people put them on their car rims. I'm not kidding. I, thank you for laughing because this is funny to me. I don't know about you, but it's just crazy. So you keep going. People got even crazier with it. There were some people that put it in the dryer with their laundry. Just let that thing spin like over and over. And you're like, yes, yes, yes. Money, money, money. My department's going to crush the other department like, or the other company or whatever it was. Some people even were daring enough to hook it up to little Fido and go for a walk with their little doggy and make them do all the steps for them, which I think is brilliant. I don't know if you have a dog inside. Just hook that sucker up to its leg and let it go, and you are destined to hit your goal every single time. And there's like that sixth sense of achievement when it's like, you've hit your fitness goal. Like, it's just, yes, I live for those moments. Like, uh, some of you get a workout report at the end of the day or whatever, but it's just so fascinating how obsessed we are with tracking our steps. This is a new phenomenon that our, our culture really didn't care about four, five, ten even years ago about individual steps. And I started to think about how does that relate to even how we track our own faith? Like if you could look through your life and actually map out certain faith steps and see where you're growing, that would be so helpful. Like I would be so in on that. Like to figure out, am I growing day after day? Because here's what I know, and you know this too. Many of us grew up in a culture, whether it's West Michigan or Midwest or somewhere else, likely that we were around or in a home with people of faith. Yet many of us know what it's like to have someone express faith publicly, but never really express it in their personal lives. For them to say, no, faith is important, or we should defend Christian values in the public sphere, but we're not really going to live them out when it comes to our own home, 
our own marriage, our own parenting, our own finances. We're just kind of going to do what everyone else sort of does. And what's interesting to me about that is you keep digging in. This is actually a trend that's growing in our culture, in our nation, in our society. 78% of people who would say, I have no religious affiliation. This is not like, yeah, I go to church sometimes. It's like, I'm not associated with any religion. 78% of those people grew up in a church. 78%. Let that hit you for a second. 78%. So what does that mean about faith? What, is, what kind of implications does that have for, for our culture, in which we do seek as a church to know that we are growing, that we are actually taking steps and becoming more and more like Jesus, becoming more and more consumed with the kind of life that he led. Yet many of us experience the external stress of trying to live that out without really measurable faith steps. Some of us, there's anxiety when it comes to our faith. Some of us, some of us there's stress. There's frustration. There's unanswered questions. There's maybe at times distance from the God who we're trying to place our faith in. And so how do you reconcile that with this simple question? I may be the only one who's asked this, but there's a good chance you have. How do I, how do you, how do we measure our faith? How do we do it? How do we actually know we're growing? How do we actually know that we're taking steps forward not just kind of being able to look back 20 years and say, oh, I'm a different person, but how do we actually measure it day by day? How do we really know how our faith is measured when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to God's view of us? Luckily, we have a guide in this. We have someone who's gone before us who can show us what it means to live out some very radical faith, some zero-type faith, if you will, that dared to dream and push the boundary of what faith looked like in his culture. His name is Elijah. And Elijah was a kind of wild guy. You think maybe of John the Baptist, if you're familiar with those scriptures, kind of out there wearing like a buckskin and eating honey. Like that's kind of the mental picture the scriptures give. Uh, but Elijah was a prophet. He was similar to John the Baptist in that he spoke. He was the mouthpiece for God in his generation and in his world. And so he would speak out and say things that were often very radical and challenged the status quo, even of God's own people. But in, in Elijah's story, I mean, we've got all sorts of weirdness happening. I don't know if you've read through First or even Second Kings before in, in your own Bible reading, but there's some weird stuff that happens in Elijah's life. And we're going to get into some of that over the next couple of weeks. But the first weird story that we're going to look at happens in the midst of a drought. Now, many of you are familiar with agricultural society. We get that living in Byron Center or surrounding areas that if you don't have rain, that's not good for farming. If you don't have water, it's not exactly conducive to good livestock or good crops. And water is a key ingredient to seeing those things grow. So if you're three years into a drought, things are not looking good for you. Your wife is maybe a little bit frustrated at you. Your cattle are mad at you, and that's a weird thing. Your kids are probably hungry. You've got all these problems you just didn't have to face when there's water around. But in a drought, there's no water. And God had sent this drought to Israel to teach them a lesson in a way, to prepare them for something, and we're about to see what. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to walk through a story together. And not all of it's going to be on the screen because it's important for you to have it in your hands, whether it's on a phone or in a physical Bible. If you need physical Bibles, they're right back there near the connections wall. But in 1 Kings 18, verse 1, here's what we read. After a long time, 
in the third year, talking about the drought, the third year of the drought, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain. I'll end the drought. I will send rain on the land. Cue Toto's Africa. So Elijah went to present himself. That'll take some of you a little bit. That's okay. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. This is life or death moment. And when you hear rain is coming, you're all ears. I mean, this is good news for you. And so as Elijah is presenting this message, God says, you need to go to the guy that hates me the most on the planet, and then I'll send rain. And Elijah's like, come on, you're kidding. Ahab and Jezebel are notorious in the scriptures for just being vehement opponents of God. They did everything they could to drive the Christian people, the people following God, away from God, away from his laws, away from his commands, and to worship other gods, other idols, the primary idol being Baal. Now, Baal may be a familiar name to you if you know the scriptures. If you don't, that's okay. But the main thing that Baal is known for is being the Lord of rain and dew. And Elijah is about to challenge this idol. He's about to challenge him with the God who created the rain and the dew. So you see the story unfolds. But many of us, if you're sitting as just an ordinary person, and you're wrestling with this drought, and you're facing the, the three years of pain and hardship and suffering, many of us relate to droughts. Now, it may not be in a physical sense. Many of us know what it's like to be in kind of a financial drought. Some of us know what it's like to be in a relational drought. Others of us know what it means to be in a spiritual drought, a season of waiting or testing. Many of us have experienced on some level or another what it's like to be in a physical pain sort of drought, in which stuff just doesn't go away. We know what it means to be in a drought. We can identify, and so often in our own lives, we turn to other things. We turn to the bales of our day. Maybe that's Netflix, a bottle of wine, a credit card, a friend, or a relationship you know is bad for you. There's all sorts of things we turn to, and God's people did the same exact thing in this story. They turned away from what God had for them. And so what does God do? He says, you need to go to Ahab. You need to go to Jezebel and tell them we're going to have this spiritual showdown on Mount Carmel. And that's exactly what happens. So Elijah goes to Ahab. He challenges him. And again, if you've got your scriptures, you see in verse 16 of chapter 18, still in 1 Kings. So Obadiah, Ahab's messenger, went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, I love this, is that you, troubler of Israel? Elijah replied, I've not made trouble for Israel, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, both idols who eat at Jezebel's table. Verse 20, so Abraham sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long? How long will you waver between two opinions? The Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal is God, follow him. And the people said nothing. There's a spiritual showdown about to take place. Elijah's saying, you think Baal's going to send rain? He's the most powerful? You're wrong. You're wrong. You don't know what God has in store. You don't know the kind of God 
I served, yet many of their lives for seasons of their lives had been turned towards putting their hope in false idols like Baal and Asherah, the ones we see listed here in Elijah's story. So Elijah challenges Ahab. They meet up on Mount Carmel, which is Baal territory. This is, this is Ahab and Jezebel's region. This is their spot. And he's giving them all the advantages. He's saying, we'll go to your place. You got the Lord of rain and dew. Let's see what Baal can pull off against my God. He challenges him. He's got some crazy faith that God is going to show up. And so as you continue reading in the story, here's what happens. So the prophets gather. There's hundreds, if not thousands of people gather around. Put yourself in that story. You're at the top of this mountain. It's been dry for three years. You smell blood sacrifices. You got your friends and family around you. You got your little kids asking, Daddy, why are they cutting that bowl open? You're like, I have no idea. Like, there's all these weird things happening. And they bring water. So they build these altars. Elijah repairs God's altar that was on Mount Carmel. And the prophets of Baal construct their own altar in which they're going to have a showdown and see which altar gets consumed with fire first. And so they bring two bulls, put one on God's altar, drop another one on Baal's altar, and they say, all right, it's time to pray, it's time to cry out, it's time to reach out to your God and see what he can do. And the first altar that gets consumed with fire wins. We're going to follow that God. Talk about radical faith. And it's life or death for Elijah, because if he is wrong, what happens? probably going to die. I mean, all these people are coming against him. The king's against him. This entire nation has been turned away from God, and they are now facing this showdown. And so he prays, Baal prays, the prophets are going absolutely nuts. They are crying out. They are screaming. They're hurling their bodies at this altar. They begin mutilating themselves. I mean, it is a gory, not cute scene, okay? Like, they are just going after it. They're doing anything possible to get Baal's attention. And Elijah kind of quips at them. Maybe you have a friend who's really good at these kind of things. He says, maybe Baal's asleep. Maybe he's, maybe he just can't hear you. Like maybe you need to go louder. And so they get louder and louder and they're getting emotionally charged up. There's thousands of people watching the scene take place. He keeps going after them. And no, it says, scripture says, no one heard, no one answered, and no one even paid attention to these Baal prophets, just going absolutely crazy trying to get his attention. What happens? In verse 36, here's what we read. If you've got the scriptures, this one will be on the screen. At the time of the sacrifice, after pouring, remember, they not only had the fire, but Elijah dug trenches. He's pouring water out. You can read the whole story. He's dousing it with water. He's making sure everything possible stacked against God, but he knows God will show up. And Baal is just sitting there, prophets crying out, and here's what we read. Verse 36, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. You are God in Israel, and that I'm your servant. I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts Back again. What do we read happens next? Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. The wood and the stones and the soil and also licked up my batteries. That just keep going. Then that didn't happen. The wood and the stones and the soil 
and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And the story takes a turn. It transitions. But that's all that happens on Mount Carmel. Now when you read a story like that, what are your immediate thoughts? What kind of things does that relate to in our lives? Because very few of us, very few of us have the experience, process, very few of us have the experience of that kind of Mount Carmel showdown. That doesn't relate to me at all. I don't know what your home life is like. <laughs> that is not my home life. At least I don't think so. Like I've got nothing to relate to in this story. But what does it teach us about how do we measure our own faith? It teaches us actually a few things. Again, if, if you're taking notes, you want to capture these three things. If you want to know how to actually measure out your faith, here's what we read in 1 Kings 18 and following Elijah's story. Elijah's faith teaches us three things. The first is this, that Elijah's faith cost him something. It cost him something. Now let's just put, address kind of the elephant in the room. No one in, in, in our culture likes things to cost them very much. I, I don't know about you. I love coupons. I love when my wife just crushes the M perks. And I go to the store, it's like, you want $30 off your basket? I'm like, yes, please. And they give me money back or whatever. Like, I love that. It's great. But when it comes to my faith, man, I don't like it to cost me something. Yet Elijah's story costs him something. It says in the scriptures they brought four water jars to douse God's altar just to prove that God could consume it with fire, just to prove that God could do anything. He could have actually do the impossible. But remember, they're in a drought. Is water precious? Yes, that's a huge deal. And yet they do this eight-mile walk to the Mediterranean Sea up this 1,600-foot peak, Mount Carmel, and they bring four water jars, not once, not twice, but three different times. Elijah's faith, it cost him something. It was a precious resource, but they dumped it out knowing that God was going to come through. The second is faith will always require dependence on God. You may say, well, that is faith in a way, but more than that, it's going to require God to do something greater in you than you could ever do on your own. See, God here in this story is greater than Baal. And it was a life or death issue, like we said, for Elijah. Yet God pulled through. That's the second. But the third is almost the most important for us. Is that Elijah's faith was personal, but it was never private. Let me say that one more time. Elijah's faith was personal, but never private. See, Elijah clearly, as a prophet, as someone who spent time with the Lord, who knew his voice so well, he was attuned to God's spirit speaking to him. Elijah knew God's voice. He knew God. He was close to God, but that never stopped at his own relationship with God. It never stopped with those prayers, those moments, those encounters with God. It always led into something for other people. It always led for a kind of Mount Carmel moment, which God could show up in power, that God could show off and prove that he was the one true God. He's not the Lord of rain and dew. He created rain and dew. And so as you look at the story, those are the three, three, three things. It cost him something, required dependence on God, and it was personal and never private. And this is maybe the most memorable way I can think of to talk about faith. That faith is an irrational follow-through. 
on what God has said. It's an irrational follow-through. Some of you give. Some of you are very generous. And whether that's a church or other causes, it doesn't really fully make sense to give outside of faith. Have you ever thought about that? That if you are giving and you had to explain to your coworkers why you give to a church and they're not people of faith, you may have tried that. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But in Christ, as you follow God's ways, you know that his command and you're trying to obey him, it makes 100% sense. If you have an illness or a sickness and you're praying and asking God to heal and you kind of explain to your friends, yeah, I am going to the doctor, but I also believe that God could miraculously heal me. If you're outside of faith, that just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't compute. It's not fully rational. If you go to the other extreme, maybe some of you have stepped out in boldness. Some of you said, I'm going to kind of put my friend and my reputation on the line by sharing my faith with them and telling them about the good news that God has for them. And you've gone out and it's bold and your heart's beating fast and you're nervous. You have no idea what they're going to say. Outside of faith, Putting your reputation on the line of that person just doesn't make a lot of sense. There's very few things people will put their reputation on the line for, but faith is one that we choose to do. Even as I think about this series, the fact that we as a group of people together believe that in our day we could maybe even see zero lives around us unchanged by Jesus, that doesn't make any sense. No marketing campaign can accomplish that. Only God's power, only his providence, only his own presence working within us through his Holy Spirit can pull that off. See, Elijah's simple faith step turned a nation back to God. Elijah's faith wasn't left hanging. God pulled through, and he had to take a step, though, of a rational follow-through of faith. And so if you want to know, how, how do I start on this journey? So now you know what, how you measure it. I mean, really, through this story, we were given tools how to measure. But if you want to know how to start this right now, to start it today, to actually be able to track and measure your own faith journey. I would just give you two real simple things that we know happened in Elijah's life. The first is start with prayer. And the second is end with action. Start with prayer, end with action. See, you can pray up a storm, but if you don't obey anything God has asked you to do, it's in vain. You can know God so deeply and intimately, and yet all the people in your life may have no clue you follow him. What is that worth? You may be a part of a church like this in which we are seeking to see zero lives unchanged by Jesus, but if you never model that in your own life, it's impossible. We are the church. We are the ones. We are the people that step out and say, God, you can do anything you want. It's sometimes an irrational follow-through, but it starts with prayer and it ends with action. As I think about that, I think about a, a story um, that I recently heard, and I, I wasn't aware of this story, but it kind of seals the deal uh, for me in terms of what it means to take a face step like this. There's a guy in rural Canada whose name was Bob Powers. Now, Bob Powers was a, a kid who grew up on a farm, one of seven kids. His family was pretty much self-sustaining. I mean, this literally... Uh, was the perfect picture of like pioneer Canada. Like he was out there, they were farming, they were growing their own food, it was the whole deal. They were killing their own meat, like it was the American dream in the 50s or 40s or whatever. Like they were doing it. They were living it out. But as Bob grew up, he became really, really good at moose hunting. He just became like in that area renowned for being the best moose hunter there is. 
And through that, he moved closer to the city and would sell his meats and all this stuff. And eventually got married and lived in a house. And it was all good. Bob's life was going really well. But one day his pastor challenged them. He was a Christian. Challenged them to share their faith and invite someone to their church. Now again, this is not like in very populated areas. So he's in this kind of city climate. And so he's got the opportunity now to do that. And so Bob decides one day he's going to take a faith step. Bob walks across the street and invites the family who Bob even described as not exactly church folk. You know any people like that? (laughs) Bob says, "Uh, are you sure? Like, I don't know if they're even going to come. They may not hear me. But Bob steps out. He irrationally follows through on something. And he steps out. He walks across the street and he invites this family to church. And maybe you've had this experience. Every one of them said no. I don't know if you ever had that happen to you. I've had that happen to me. Like, like, no, I'm good. Like, that's not for me. Except their teenage son, Ken. And Ken was about one decision away from jail. You may know someone like that as well. Like, he got kicked out of school. He lost his job and literally was living on the edge of, of heading to prison the next day. And he decides to go with Bob to church, not because he was being spiritually moved, but because Bob was a really good moose hunter, and Ken really wanted to be a really good moose hunter. And so the two guys go to church together. They go to church. Ken hears this message about the good news of Jesus, the faith, the hope, the grace of God, and it moves him, but it doesn't really have any personal effect. But on the way home, Bob Powers steps out one more time. Bob Powers says, Ken, can I share with you my story? Can I share with you like what God has done in my own life and the hope he has for you? And and I just want to tell you what he's done for me. So they're driving home. They get to the driveway of Ken's house and Ken receives Christ. He decides to, to give his life to Christ, to surrender his life to Christ. And that guy was my grandfather. And my family is now all serving ministry because of Bob's faith step. Almost every single person in my immediate family is serving in full-time pastoral ministry. But that wasn't always that way. Because Ken was a very jacked-up teenager. He had a lot of issues. He was not like cream of the crop for being a pastor. But after receiving Christ, after Bob sharing the gospel, he stepped out, married my grandmother, Anne, who recently passed away. But both of them served in ministry for 40, 50 years together. And my dad, Mark, felt a call to ministry early on in his childhood, went to study for ministry, became a pastor, has led in ministries around the world over the past 30, 40 years. My uncle now pastors a church that my grandfather got saved in. I think about stories like that. It took a Bob Powers. And maybe you're the Bob Powers for somebody else. Maybe you don't think you're qualified. Maybe you think you're too ordinary or regular. Maybe you don't relate to Elijah because you don't have that kind of faith yet. But never underestimate what one faith step can do. Bob didn't know. My family tree was changed because Bob was willing to take a faith step. And that made me your call today. I want to close with this. Grace Hopper, who's an American naval scientist, didn't write this about faith, but I really think it applies. She writes this, a ship in port is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. A ship in port is safe, 
It's comfortable. There's no risk. But that's not what ships are built for. That's not what your faith is built for. That's not what zero faith is built for. We have the audacity to believe that God could do that through us. And we're going to take those faith steps. If you don't, though, if you choose to keep faith private, if you choose to keep it internal, you'll only experience a really, if I can say this this way, a real self-focused faith. It may impact you, but it will never trickle out into anyone else's life. I know Jesus doesn't want that for you. I know Jesus wants me and you and you to have a zero-focused faith. A life that looks beyond the borders of what's comfortable and safe and risk-free and decides to step out, decides to live out faith, decides to do what maybe no one else can do and watch God do the miraculous through it, just like Elijah's story. Never, my friends, underestimate what one faith step can do. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that in our time you could raise up more and more Bob Power stories. I thank you that none of us are too unqualified to do what you ask us to do. God, I thank you for legacy and for heritage. Even in our own families, there was some person at some point that changed the family tree and surrendered to Jesus, accepted salvation, and that has changed everything for us. And I pray, I've got the audacity to believe that you could do that in our day. That there would be people who walk through these doors, maybe not today, but maybe another day, have an encounter with you that changes their family tree. We believe that. Help us to be willing, Jesus, to just lay it on the line for you. To know that you are worth it all because of our identity and hope in you that we can have a zero-type faith.